James 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning. I'm glad that you can, you can join us. I'm glad to have Pastor Matt back to do worship. It's a blessing as well as, as the opportunity to integrate more people um, into the service with the, with the scripture readings. I also do want to follow up on, on Fred's announcement. We do have a, a, a brief congregational meeting after the service. Um, if, if you're not a member or even if this is your first time coming, please, uh, I encourage you to, to stick around. We're going to be talking about some of our plans for the fall, and it would be a great chance to get a bit of a picture of what we're hoping to do in the, in the coming months. Um, I imagine with the rain, we don't have the outside seating, so we've got more persons than usual that are joining us um, on the live stream. And as Fred said, we will have a Zoom option. Um, in between the service and the start of the meeting, we are going to post the Zoom link on the um, private face, uh, Facebook group. So if you are live streaming, please do look for that. But again, it's God's Word that calls us, that creates us as the church that crafts us. So before we turn to His Word, let us pray. God our Father, we thank you for this chance to come together. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us by your word. I pray, Father, that you would bless um, the words of this sermon, that they would be faithful and true to your intent for this passage, and that by your spirit, um, you would work them deeply within us to build up the community, um, to build up the loving fellowship that we have together as your people. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, in the present passage, James reminds us of a core truth of the Christian life, the truth that God is God and that we are not. But James also wants to tell us something very important, and that is that this truth that God is God and, and we are not, is not a stifling constraint upon us and upon our community life. Rather, this truth is what frees us for both responsibility and for rest as we act faithfully before God with our neighbor in the created world. And towards that end, there's, there's one main thing that I want us to take away from this sermon. That we would trust the God on whom we are wholly and absolutely dependent. And from this trust, that we would act faithfully in the world. And that we would do this because of his love for us. 
that we would trust the God on whom we're wholly dependent. And from this trust, we would act with confidence because this God loves us. But how exactly does James get us there? How does he get us to this truth? Well, if you remember the scripture reading, he actually starts by pointing to all of the inabilities that we experience as humans. James tells us that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. James tells us that our life is but a mist that's here for a very short time and then it vanishes. What James is doing is directing our attention away from our will, from our agency, from the actions that we hope and plan to do, and instead directing our attention to the will, to the agency, to the action of our great God, reminding us again that he's God and that we are mere creatures. And James tells us that all that God wills comes to pass. But of course, that's not so for us. We will and want many things that don't happen. Again, we're a mist here for a short time, and then we vanish. So James is telling us that as much as we might think differently, we are not autonomous. We are not independent. We, as creatures, are wholly dependent upon the will of God. As James says, we should say only if the Lord wills will we live and do this or that. That's the lion's share of the passage that we just read. But then James does something interesting. After he's talking about God's greatness and our total dependence on him, he takes an interesting turn. He says the following, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And this statement can feel a bit out of context. Why does it follow the preceding portion that's talking about how we're not autonomous, how everything we do is dependent upon the will of God, that we don't have the control that we think we have? If anything, this seems like the very opposite conclusion that James should reach. He's directing our attention to God's will, to God's agency, to God's action, and then he tells us to act, to act ethically, to avoid sin. Well, what is he doing here? Well, it makes sense if we think about some dangers that could flow from what James has just said. Perhaps the danger of, of fatalism. That is, this truth could, taken in a certain way, lead us to a dangerous place. If we're utterly dependent upon God, then do our actions even matter? Do we have any real freedom, any true moral responsibility in the world? Are we merely puppets? For if we rely wholly upon the action, agency, and willing of God, well then, does our own willing, our own action, our own agency have any integrity, any role to play? But remember, when James makes this final statement, he begins it with, so. And that's a, that's a logical connector. He's saying that everything that he just said is going to flow, is going to follow into this, that we should act ethically and avoid sin. And that's because of everything that preceded. But how can this be? 
How is it that God's greatness, his will, and his agency actually serves to catalyze our action, catalyze our impetus to act? James is telling us that because we're wholly dependent upon God, so we are responsible for all that we do. James is saying that everything that God wills comes to pass Yet, we are still agents. We are still responsible for the things that we do. If not, James would not conclude this section with a call to our own action. He's saying because of how great God is, act rightly before God with your neighbor in creation. Well, how can this be so? Well, the the Reformed tradition, uh, of which Presbyterianism is a part, and and following a long tradition in the church, we've often talked about God and humanity acting on two different levels, two different planes. And we we don't want to get too far into it, but the tradition has often said that God operates and acts on the level of primary causality and humans on the level of secondary causality. The important point, though, is that God and humans don't compete in their agency, that there's two levels, that there's not some percentage, that when things come to pass, it's not some interaction, God willing and acting 50% and us willing and acting 50%. God 60% and us 40%. God 30% and us 70%. It's not like there's this pie that we have and God takes some pieces and we take some pieces. Because that would be a big problem in a number of ways. And this is a point that theologian Kevin Van Hooser makes. That if that were the case, we would only ever have part of God. If that were the case, that would mean that God would have to make room, that he would have to limit himself in some way in order for us to act and to have freedom. That would mean that when God acts in the world, that he would not give us all of himself. And think of an analogy here. We often speak of of authors, authors of novels, putting their full selves into their work. They pour all of themselves into crafting the story that they're writing. Yet the more that they pour of themselves into the work, the better the characters become. Such characters are not cliches. They're not caricatures. They strike us as real people with real responsibilities and real choices. I'm sure we've all read bad novels. And in those novels, the characters seem stiff. They seem very predictable. But the more the authors give themselves, the better the authors are, the more the authors exercise their own agency in crafting the story, the freer the characters actually are as they burst the bounds of our expectations, of our social scripts, of the cliches that we have operating in our head. And because the author has acted with all of himself or all of herself, the characters are in fact freer. The agency of the author never competes with that of the character But the action of the author is the very foundation of the action of the characters. The more the authors acts, the more the characters act. And to speak of competition here is to overturn the whole authorial enterprise. Take just one example. This is a a quote by 
literary critic George Steiner, and he's, he's talking about the works of Dostoevsky. And he says something very interesting about Dostoevsky. He speaks of a special capacity, quote, to listen with an inward ear to the independent and unforeseeable dynamics of actions. The characters seem admirably free from their creator's will. End quote. Steiner's saying that Dostoevsky's characters in some way, shape, or form seem free, seem independent from Dostoevsky himself. Although, of course, Dostoevsky is their very author. He's inscribed their very being. He has inscribed everything that comes to pass in their lives. And this is not dissimilar to God's agency in establishing our agency. God gives all of himself to us. One of the most important theological formulations in, in the tradition, um, in my opinion, was by Thomas Aquinas, and he called God pure act. And one of the things that means is God always acts with all of himself. Anything that he does within creation, he holds none of himself back, but he's always acting and giving all of himself and everything that he does. It would be impossible for God to act with less of himself. But if that's not the case, then we never have all of God. And ironically, we would also have less of ourselves. If God and us were competing on this level, then we could never act with all of ourselves. We would only be acting with 50%, with 40%. <clears throat> Think again about the author analogy. Dostoevsky, in a sense, poured all of himself into his work. And so we have all of his characters. We have all of Dmitry Karamazov, all of Prince Mishkin, all of Raskolnikov. In a much more powerful and profound way, God has poured all of himself into creation. And so we have all of ourselves. He is wholly sovereign, and we are free. Now, this is a great mystery, but this alone gives both God and humanity the dignity that they deserve. God does not need to limit himself to act in the world. God does not need to limit himself so that we can be free and moral and responsible. There's a way to formulate this, this theologically. We, we don't need to go there now, but I'd love to talk with you if you have questions about that. But what the important point is, is that what God wills comes to pass, and yet we are responsible now, this can be a difficult point for us because we are used to thinking of freedom as being without limits. That if we're going to be free agents, if we're going to act in the world, then we cannot have any limits and any constraints. But I want to argue that a lack of limits does not strengthen our freedom, but it actually works to undermine it. This is a quote from Alan uh, Jacobs. He's a literary professor and a sort of all-around Christian intellectual, and he writes the following, quote, Some therapists who work with young people today say that the single greatest source of stress and anxiety for them is the sheer number of choices they have before them. 
Jacob then continues, quote, a world that seems to give us infinite choice actually makes choice nearly impossible. We know this. There are countless jobs that we can take. There are countless places that we can live. Recall the temptation that James mentions, the temptation to say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. To be sure, in our present day, the number of towns that we can go to have increased exponentially. The purposes for our travel have increased exponentially. The ways that we can make a profit have increased exponentially. And of course, there are many, many other reasons that we might choose to go and move to a place other than simply making a profit. Yet Jacobs is telling us that this number of available choices, this lack of limits, rather than freeing up our agency and giving us freedom, has actually frozen us in indecision. We have fear. We have second-guessing. We're always wondering, did I make the right choice here? Did I make the right choice here? I was actually talking to a member in the congregation about this issue yesterday, and he had mentioned going to Baskin-Robbins, and I had that exact same experience. So as a kid, I was always very excited to go to Baskin-Robbins, and of course, Baskin-Robbins' claim to fame was, was 31 flavors. So when I went there, you know, you, you see the freezer and there's all these tubs and you've got 31 flavors and you can take a few samples, you can't sample them all, but eventually you have to make the choice, which is really, really tough. But then when you finally get that ice cream, at least for me, I had a hard time enjoying it because I was always thinking about those 30 other flavors that I didn't try. Just thinking, well, maybe that one would have been a little bit better. Maybe that one would have been a little bit better. And the irony, even though Baskin-Robbins was this fantastic ice cream place, I actually enjoyed eating ice cream there less than going to a place that had chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. Because there was so much indecision. You're always looking about that other flavor and wondering if it could have been a little bit better. You never rested content in that one scoop of ice cream that you actually chose. And really, that's a parable for so much of modern life right now. We're constantly going over things in our mind, asking ourselves, did we choose the right place to live? Have we chosen the right job? Have we chosen the right romantic partner or spouse? Have we chosen the right course of study? Have I developed the right skills? Have I taken up the right hobbies? Have I given myself to the correct community activities or community projects? There are limitless, limitless, limitless choices. And what this can lead to, and, and often does, is a steady churn of second-guessing. But on the front end, actually serves to frustrate our decisions. And on the back end, it saps the confidence that we have in our decisions. Because there's always other options. We're always able to kind of look back over our shoulder at all those things we didn't choose, wondering, if life would have been a little better had we made a different choice in this or that area. And what that means is that if our life rests completely on our own will and not on the will of God, well then choices become absolutely crushing. And there's no rest and there's no relief because we can never silence that steady churn of second guessing. 
But this is not the way that James understands our choices. He says we cannot understand the choices we make apart from that truth that if the Lord wills, we will live or do this or that. Is this a constraint? Yes, it's a constraint. Is it a limit? Yes, it's a limit. But it's also the very condition of our choice. I had borrowed an example earlier in the sermon series from a philosopher, and <clears throat> he presents the following picture. There's a, a dove, and the dove thinks, if it wasn't for air resistance, then I could fly so much faster. And it's true in the sense that the dove could fly a little faster without air resistance, I suppose. But the irony is that that air resistance that the dove is bemoaning, the dove is angry with, is the very thing that makes the flight possible in the first place. Yes, is the air resistant a constraint? Absolutely. But the air resistance is actually the very condition of the flight. Without the air resistance, the dove wouldn't get off the ground. And just as the air resistance is the constraint in the condition of the dove's flight, so too is the will of God the condition and the constraint of the choices that we make. And because we can rest in God's will for our lives, we can make decisions. And we can rest confidently and contently in the decisions that we make. Again, this is a truth that calls us to action. If that were not the case, James would not finish this section by saying, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So what that means is we need to seek out God's will in making decisions. And when we do that, we can rest knowing two important truths. We have sought God's will, we have submitted to God's will, and God has willed that this thing has come to pass. If we have submitted to God's will in a decision, and the decision has come to pass, we can rest. We can have contentment. We can have relief. We're not looking at the proverbial other 30 flavors, whatever that might be for any particular decision. If we have followed God, if we have avoided sin, we need not second guess. We can silence that steady churning. Is this the right job? Is this the right partner? Is this the right activity? Is this the right place? And we can do that because we've sought God's will and God has willed it. We can rest, we can have relief, we can have contentment, and we can invest in where we are. Remember that James also talks about freedom. We've seen that in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. And the word that James uses for freedom is eleutheria. And we've looked at this quote a few times, but D.C. Schindler talks about the richness of eleutheria, of this concept of freedom in the ancient world. That it is, quote, the freedom to be the full flourishing of a nature. And it denotes, quote, the notion of perfection or completion. And that's very important because, again, James begins his letter by saying the following to his audience. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That you might be perfect 
incomplete, that you might be all that God intends for you, that's what freedom means for James. It's the freedom of the oak tree versus the freedom of the acorn. It's the freedom to be like the tree of Psalm 1 who grows to its full maturation, who produces leaves and produces fruit. That's freedom in James's conception. And towards that end, it's important to point out that one essential means by which God makes us more free in this sense, that God matures us, that God makes us to grow, is through community. Recall that the second commandment of the human life is to love our neighbor as ourself. And as we love our neighbor, we grow, we mature. We're put on the path of flourishing, we're put on the path of the good life. But this draws a deep contrast with many modern assumptions. Many modern assumptions do not tell us that to flourish, you should be put out by your neighbor. For the scriptural understanding is that we need the needs of our neighbor. We need the needs of our neighbor to become what God intends us to be. And inversely, our neighbor needs us. And we know this from experience. Think about the social roles that you've assumed in your community, in your family. We're often overwhelmed by the demands of friendship as us and those closest to us experience difficult life situations. But as those life situations come about, we grow into the role of a friend. We have these social roles wherein beforehand we know we're not ready to fill it, but once we move into the role and the demands of that role, we grow into it. We could say the same thing about marriage. When we encounter and are overwhelmed by the demands of marriage, we grow into the role of a husband and a wife. When we're overwhelmed by the demands of parenting, we grow into the role of a mother or father. It's those relationships and the demands therein brought about by the needs of those we love that grow us into what God intends us to be. But that means that having a freedom where we're not needed, a freedom where we're not limited by the community in any way, is a freedom not worth having. Because that kind of freedom actually cuts us off of the very circumstances of our growth. And there's a great example of this in literature. The character of Carl Lindstrom in Willa Cather's novel, O Pioneers. And actually, it came across this book by a, a great article by a literary professor, uh, Rachel Griffiths. And it, it pushed me to, to read this novel, and I would highly recommend it to you, because I think it's actually more timely now than, it was written, uh, than when it was written 100 years ago. And Carl is a lifelong friend of the main character, Alexandra Bergson. And Bergson has traveled, uh, or sorry, uh, Carl has traveled across the country seeking fortune here and there. And Carl is set in contrast to Alexandra because Alexandra has committed to the place and the people of the Nebraska prairie because that's where she is. That's where she has been placed. And thinking on these things, Carl says the following. And these words strike us perhaps even more acutely 
than they did at the time of their original writing. Carl says the following to Alexandra, quote, freedom so often means that one isn't needed anywhere. Here, you, Alexandra, are an individual. You have a background of your own. You would be missed, but off there in the cities, there are thousands of rolling stones like me. We're all alike. We have no ties. We know nobody. When one of us dies, they scarcely know where to bury him. Our landlady and the delicatessen man are our mourners. We have no house, no place, no people of our own. This isn't critiquing living in the cities, but a kind of social mobility wherein we're never tied down to a people or to a place. Because relationships naturally limit choices because to enter into a relationship is to enter into a context of mutual dependence where you are obligated by your neighbor's needs and your neighbor is obligated by yours. But that means that your choices are shrunk. You're not wholly free, in a sense. Because again, as Carl defines freedom, it is, quote, one isn't needed anywhere. Freedom so often means that one isn't needed anywhere. So freedom here is construed as being a placeless and peopleless person on a never-ending pilgrimage chasing down the God of choice. But let me tell you, You are needed here in this particular city with this particular people in this particular congregation. We need you. And for that reason, if you are a part of this congregation, your choices are limited. For that reason, you are not free in the way that Carl describes freedom. If that is your view of freedom... You must give it up to be a part of this community or, to be fair, any community. Your choices become limited to what fosters the health of the community, to what fosters the love of your neighbor. This is the privilege and responsibility of what it means to be needed. This is the kind of freedom that James has in mind. And certainly God might call you elsewhere, Here at One Ancient Hope, we have the privilege of hosting a number of wonderful people only for a short time and then sending them off to the next place that God has placed them. We're grateful to be a part of their lives even for just a year. And we send them off with excitement and with expectation. Though to be sure, we miss them dearly. But again, for this time, God has placed you here. He's placed you here by his will. Rest in that and serve this place and serve this people with and in confidence. Again, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So rest. Commit to this place. God has placed you here. Trust in that. And so often, the sin that we do flows from a lack of trust. We're acting from fear, not from this trust in God. And I'm speaking to myself here just as much to anyone else. When we think about our bad uses of money, it's so often from fear. We're not trusting God. We want to hold on to money as a source of security, 
but it can never be. When we're pursuing a romantic partner that we know we should not, we're not content to wait upon God's good and gracious purposes in our life to bring along a person that we know he would approve of as a relationship partner. When we're fearful about our jobs and the demands, possibly losing our work, we can act from fear and we can work through dinner. Not loving and giving time to our family as we should. When we fear about our children's future, will they get into the right job? Will they get into the right school? We can schedule their lives in such a way that we priority extracurricular activities so that their resumes can be as good as they can be, but we can minimize family discipleship. Our days can be so crazy and stress-worn that we can minimize the importance to be in Scripture and to pray to God. These are all actions that flow from fear rather than trust. So ask yourself, what are your biggest fears? What tempts you to sin? What tempts you to force things in a way that you know you shouldn't force things? How can you trust God in these areas? That he's good, that he's gracious, that he will provide. And this can be difficult because difficult circumstances do arise. Often things don't work out like we hope. Sometimes the very things that we fear can actually come true. How do we know that we can trust God even here? How do we know that he is able to work even tragic circumstances for our good? How do we know he plans to grow us and mature us? And I say this with trepidation, in ways that easier circumstances simply could not. How do we really know that he has the best in mind for us, that he wills the best for us at all times? These are hard questions. And I want to close here with an extended illustration because I think few persons have communicated the complexity of these issues of trust and the difficult and tragic circumstances that we face better than, than C.S. Lewis, and in particular in the narratives of his Chronicles of, of Narnia. I, I don't know if you're familiar with these stories, but, but hopefully uh, enough background is, is provided so that if that's not the case, that, that, that it still makes sense. For one of the constant refrains that we find in the Chronicles of Narnia is that Aslan is, quote, not a tame lion. But we have to be careful here. For when we first come across this quote, it's from the lion in the witch in the wardrobe. We find it when the Pevensey children are first asking about Aslan. And Susan asks one of the talking animals, Mr. Beaver, the following question. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. To which Mr. Beaver responds with the following. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Aslan is a lion. Lions are not safe. But this lion is good. He's the king. He's the rightful king of all things. But it's important to keep these two truths together. He's not safe, but he's good. And so 
Time after time, we see the noble Narnians throughout the series acting with bravery and confidence because they trust the goodwill of Aslan for their lives. At one point, for instance, Prince Aurelian in the silver chair facing death says the following, quote, Aslan will be our good Lord whether he means us to live or to die. Whatever Aslan has for Aurelian, Aurelian is assured that Aslan is his good, good Lord. Aurelian knows that Aslan does not promise him safety, but he does promise him his very goodness. And again, we have to keep these together. When we come to the last book in the series, The Last Battle, a fantastic book, one that's uh, the one book in the world that I can never read with dry eyes. But Mr. Beaver's exceptional bit of theology is reduced to simply, he is not a tame lion. He is not a tame lion. The characters forget that he's good, and so they stand by while an imposter, a donkey wearing a lion skin under the command of a cruel ape, simply pretends to be Aslan. And this fake Aslan lays out unjust law after unjust law that leads to the destruction of Narnia and the bondage of its noble talking animals. The Narnians have forgotten the truth of James 4.17. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Such things are not good, and they know it. And so again and again, evil is justified because Aslan is not a tame lion. And it comes to the point that one of the characters, King Tyrion, in despair, offers the following question. Would it not be better to be dead than to have this horrible fear that Aslan has come and is not like the Aslan we have believed in and longed for? Of course, this can also be our question. This can also be our fear. God often leads us into difficult and tragic circumstances. And we can be brought to the point where we too are forced to wonder, what if God has come and he is not like that God that we believed in and longed for? Of course, Aslan came to Narnia long before He demonstrated his goodness in many ways, but perhaps most particularly by dying in the place of Edmund, the boy in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Edmund was a traitor. He betrayed his very own siblings to the evil character of the white witch. And Aslan died in his place. God, too, has come Our God has come in Jesus Christ. He too has died in our place. He too has experienced all of the miseries of the world. He experienced betrayal, poverty, loneliness, sickness, and death. And for us, he took all of these things upon himself. Of all of the characters in Narnia, least likely to doubt Aslan's goodness. I think it had to be Edmund. Because whenever Edmund had any doubt about Aslan's good and gracious purposes for his life, all he needed to do was look back 
to the stone table, the place where Aslan died for him, suffered for him, was ridiculed for him, was mocked for him, was punished for him, for his self-interest in the way that he forfeited his role as a brother. Might we do the same? It's true. Christ is not safe. He is very God of very God. He is the very one who supports and knows every single atom in your body. And he might call us into circumstances that are difficult, perhaps even circumstances that are utterly tragic. Again, I I say this with trepidation. Can we trust him and believe him that he has put us in this place with these people because he is good? Can we trust him and commit to and invest in where we are, who we are with, in the circumstances we are in? Can we trust him even when the things don't work out as we wish? Can we trust him that he will use those things to grow us into what he intends to be? Can we trust him so that we avoid sin, that we might refuse to take things into our own hands, making choices that we know he does not approve? Can we trust him so deeply, trust so deeply that he is good, that we can be content and rest confidently in his will for us right here and right now? Can we really trust that he is good and that he wills good for us? I tell you, Christ is good. He's the king, I tell you. And when you look to the cross, look at what he endured for you, for your good. He was mocked, ridiculed, stripped, spit upon, killed, and made subject to the very wrath of God on our behalf. What more can he do to show you that he loves you and that in all circumstances he wills good for you? Your absolute good. Who said anything about safe? Of course Christ isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This isn't an easy matter, but what other response can we give than that trusting response of Prince Rillian? Christ will be our good Lord, whether he means us to live or die. Or, as James teaches us to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Let us pray. God, our Father, you are our good Lord. And I say these things with trepidation. You can call us into the most difficult of circumstances, but give us the faith and the knowledge to know that you are good, that you use all things to conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And you have shown your goodness without any doubt because you have sent your Son to live the life that we ourselves should have lived, a life of perfect trust upon you, and also to die the death that we ourselves should have died. On our behalf, he was ridiculed, mocked, killed, and made subject to the very wrath of God. Help us to look into the face of Christ each time we wonder if you are good, so that we may know, yes, you are good, 
You are good and you are gracious and you will bring about your good and gracious purposes in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.